Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with your news. Dairy Animal Shelter's annual adoption drive is set to begin this week. Will you fall in love with Nugget the Pug or Church the Maine Coon? Dairy Animal Shelter is sure to have the pet for you, so come on down and find your new best friend today. Dairy Animal Shelter's annual adoption drive is sponsored by Randy's Roadkill Cleanup and Taxidermy. Death is eternal, and so are your pets. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today we are talking about the book Pet Cemetery. For today, we will be reading chapters 1 through 22. So if you've not read it, spoilers for the book ahead. And today we've got Ben Graham leading the discussion. Take it away, Ben. Oh, man, I'm excited about this. First off, this is the first book we've read. None of us have read this book. Nope. Right. This I'm is, not alone. This is all of our <laughs> first times, and that's super exciting for me. I have seen the movie, though, so I know what Get happens out. and what's coming. Get out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going in completely blind. The most cultural knowledge I have about Pet Cemetery is that one Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horrors episode. I think they're zombies. Uh, I think it might have been a <laughs> Pet Cemetery riff. I don't know. Anyway, so Pet Cemetery. We begin our book very Americana. We get to know our main characters, the Creeds. Lewis Creed, him and his family are moving to uh, Maine from Chicago because he got a job uh, at the University of Maine. And he is an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wait, this... wait, what? <laughs> oh, God, are we doing this again, Sam? <laughs> no, I, I'm really? Yes. Lewis is an asshole. He's kind of an asshole. Okay, so I, 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 <laughs> I really went back and forth on Lewis throughout this first part of the book. But he doesn't really come in to the book in a good light. We meet him driving uh, his family, his wife, Rachel, his daughter, uh, Eileen. Ellie, yeah. And uh, their young son, Gage. And their cat, Winston Churchill, or Church. <laughs> I love which that name. I love that name. <laughs> That's so good. And they are driving to their new house, and Lewis is way too fucking exasperated about his family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they did just drive nonstop from Chicago to Ludlow. And Fair. that is a long drive. And the they talk about the cat being an asshole walking around because they end up letting it out of the carrier. Because it was screaming yeah. the entire time. Are you referring to his his like monologue about his daughter? Um well there's a few things. Yes. Because in his defense I feel like he's having a thought that all parents have. And I would know because I don't have any kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he uh, at one point he says, you know, he could become very irritated with Ellie. And Kids are irritating. Fair. Very fair. <laughs> but also our literal our first introduction to the character is him 
uh, having this fantasy of stopping for food and just driving away. <laughs> okay, but, and, and this is, I guess this is why I didn't think he was an asshole, because I do have some friends with kids, and I think that that, I don't want to shame parents who have had that thought in moments of deep stress. <laughs> oh, that's not why I, I think everything else in the book is why he's an asshole. I, I completely under, I've been on a road trip with friends and thought if I could just start throwing some of these sons of bitches out right now, I might. But well, the, the way he treats Ellie throughout the first part that we're reading though, I don't feel like he's an asshole to her. Maybe there's something wrong with him. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll get there. They, uh, they come upon their house. Lewis is the only one that has seen this house and it's, this beautiful house in rural Maine, maybe not rural, but like suburban Maine. It abuts uh, this forest, which is Micmac Indian land. So there's no uh, development on their on their lands. It just sounds like a wonderful place. It's it's so beautiful that it makes a baby talk. <laughs> that's that's the magic nature will do that to you yeah <laughs> uh, they drive up and they say home and rachel his wife says home and then their baby says home and everyone like bugs their eyes out <laughs> how old is gage because he seems um, to uh grow up pretty like they they act as though this first word is a big deal and then a couple chapters later, he's like two or three. A couple, like he's climbing up and down the stairs and stuff on his own. So obviously, he's got some motor. So he function. can walk. So he's yeah. probably at least like one and a half. Okay, I don't know. In the first chapter, I imagined him as a baby. So that's my own problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they get to the house, and almost immediately we meet who might end up being the second most important character in the book. Their next, their uh, neighbor across the road, Judd Crandall. Judd's Judd. awesome. <laughs> Judd is such a good character. <laughs> um, they, they get to the house and immediately it's uh, the, the chaos of moving. I mean, we've all been there. Lewis can't find the keys to get in the house. Uh, which I also had a problem that the book describes him as neat and methodical, but he's and also... then he loses his keys for a plot point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know though. I that's happened to me, and I never lose anything. And there's this little like tiny multi tool I have that my husband has bought me twice because I keep using it. <laughs> I never lose anything. So I his freak out. Like I was like, yeah, I'd be freaking out too. <laughs> uh, but he, they, they lost their keys. And then Ellie immediately falls off a swing and scrapes her, scrapes her knee and starts screaming. And th there's a point where like three things are happening at once. And Lewis thinks, Wee! I'm going crazy. <laughs> Lewis Creed is uh, a dick and a drama queen. Like, <laughs> calm down, man. Well, well, didn't Gage get stung by a bee, too? And yep. Gage gets stung by a bee. And this is when we meet Judd. Uh, uh, Judd is an older man in his 80s, mm -hmm. but much more spry than you would think. And he comes over and he has a a uh, down home Yankee accent. And I, I just had such a clear mental image of Judd. 
What did you guys think? <laughs> Instantly, yeah, they describe him so well that I yeah, had a perfect image of him and his voice. Like I could hear because he talks like uh what is he like he says like oh yeah <laughs> like it's like so he talks like when sometimes he writes the dialogue as what he's saying but then every once in a while we'll put phonetically mm-hmm. how he says it <laughs> and, uh, and i'm like yeah I like, I like it one instance of that that i wrote down that at some point he says it'd be good to have the young ones around again but it is spelled Y-O-W-W-U-N-S. That can't be right. Is, is that Salem's Lot? What did he call, um, what did the sheriff call the kids in Salem's Lot? It can't be Yawans. <laughs> no, I thought it was something weird like Yuns? that. Yuns? Yeah. Is that it? What is the main accent? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to try. I don't know. Uh, but we meet, uh, Judd comes over in the midst of the kids crying and uh, all this just first day in a new house craziness. And just, matter of fact, looks like you're having a bit of trouble here. <laughs> and effortlessly plucks the bee stinger out of Gage's neck. With his, like, you know, gnarly kind of weathered old man hands that shouldn't be that graceful. So calm and collected. And instantly, just like Lewis, I took to Judd. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you guys, did the beginning of this book give you a little bit of a revival feeling? Kind of. The the whole family, actually, that family aspect of it made me think of revival a lot because – as I was reading the first part that we're covering, waiting for something terrible to happen to them, <laughs> praying it wouldn't, knowing it's king, so it's gonna. I I liked them so much, and I was rooting for them, and they just they seem like they're good people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I th- there are a couple times that I it, this book made me think of revival, although a I surprising think surprising amount. I I didn't get like a ominous thing with Judd. And, no. yeah. and Louis's mm-hmm. relationship, like I did with Jacobson, just the just the importance mm-hmm. of it. Yes. Made me yeah, the gravity of his presence was very felt. the The book starts off with uh, Lewis saying that Judd uh, was the father he should have had. That yep. he he meets this character late in life and he becomes this father figure. Just really reminded me of. Uh, that relationship mm-hmm. and revival. Mm-hmm. Now, as they're they're kind of uh, standing in the lawn talking, uh, Judd invites the family over to his house to meet his wife Norma, who um, is a kindly, uh, arthritic older woman. Uh, put baking soda on the bee sting. We get uh, the first time I wrote "uh oh" in my notes, <laughs> which constantly. I don't know. (laughs) I wrote uh uh-oh more times uh, in these 22 chapters because just in passing, Judd says, uh, you just want to watch them, uh, watch the kids around the road. Lots of big trucks on that road. Immediately, I'm like, uh oh. Oh, no. There is so much foreshadowing in this book. It's crazy. And there's so much, like, I know pop culture, like, stuff about pet cemetery i don't know what, exactly what happens but i know enough to know that like oh yep that's building to something something's gonna happen there 
You don't just casually mention, mention semis and tanker trucks driving past the front of your house for no good reason. It comes up so much. It's like it, the, the road is being set up to be this bad guy. <laughs> it really is because it's constantly, <laughs> constantly like a truck will just, they'll, they'll be sitting on Judd's porch and a big truck will drive by and they'll make a big deal out of Like life. from out of nowhere. Yeah. And you just know. <laughs> Nothing terrible is going to happen at all. I don't know who's dying on that road, but somebody is somebody. Hopefully, a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a weird choice. Uh, although, uh, strangers dying comes up pretty quick. Anyway, we'll we'll uh, keep going. Judd invites uh, Lewis over, and at first, Judd is kind of standoffish he's kind of cynical in his role as a doctor he says oh people just invite you over and ask for free medical exams free medical exams and it's even worse for old people yeah because they want you to put a finger in their butt what is that what josh what i think i think you've been in a i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) what happened to you that, that is not in nope. the subtext of it's this a, book at all. I, no, my, my mistake. I just thought as you get older and your health checks, but the, all right, all right, man, that's I'm fine. I'm going to run you a hot shower and you can sit in it clutching your knees later. <laughs> I need a good cry. Uh, so, yeah, he's like, oh, I'm not putting my finger up Judd's butt. I don't want to. But after a day of moving, he decides to actually go over, and uh, it becomes a ritual. He goes over to Judd's house, and uh, they become quick friends. This is King writing moments I want to be a part of. Like, it's that idealistic, like, man, you know, nice summer night, walking over to your neighbor's house, cracking a, a beer, and just talking and, and hanging out, like having just a really kind of chill time. It's set up so nicely that it's it's one of those instances where sometimes I watch a movie and I'm so involved with the characters and I know with that climax, something terrible is going to happen. And I just think if I stop it right here, <laughs> it's, it's a happy ending. It's, yeah. Everything's good. I don't have to suffer through that. <laughs> and this is I could just read about this relationship between these two men. Yeah. Um, and in this first night where he goes over for a few beers, it is also the first uh, that they talk about the pet cemetery. Now, I, if I recall that he mentions that beyond their property, he makes a reference to that. You'll see kids come through because kids keep the path clear because up that uh, up that their hill and down a ways is the pet cemetery. And the kids have just kind of taken it upon themselves when when pets die. And he even says, you know, sometimes crossing the street pets get run over mm-hmm. and, and the kids take them up there but the the view is amazing you know what i'll uh, i'm gonna take you and your family up there and and show you guys tomorrow i think or, or like sometime soon mm-hmm. i'm gonna take you there and, and show you and i think he even mentions that he has a dog that he buried up there or he might mention that when they're already i up think there. yeah he yeah. shows in the marker yeah life goes on and uh the creeds are getting used to their new home Ellie starts going to school. Lewis is preparing for getting ready to go to work uh, when the university starts up. And one day, uh, while in the house, just on a regular day, Lewis is walking upstairs and all of a sudden he's gripped by this premonition. It was interesting the way that this is described. 
because he he jumps and he almost screams and he says it was simply one of those psychological cold pockets people sometimes passed through. It's the first thing that happens that gives any indication that something bad's going to happen, other than uh, the various uh, <laughs> heavy-handed uh, trucks. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think he was he was carrying Gage up to his crib and he was in the hall and it felt like something had brushed past him in the hall and then it was gone and he kind of dismisses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, that ominous presence. Yeah. And he dismisses it um, until sometime later, Judd takes the family on a hike to the pet cemetery. And the, I, I love the, the walk that he talks about that the kids go up there and then Rachel is immediately like, Ellie, you're not allowed to come up here by yourself. It's like kind of a long ways. It's longer than they think. And they get to the, like the top of that hill and they can see for like miles and like the view is beautiful. And then they get all the way to the pet cemetery. And I think they, they describe it. They, the archway made of weather stained boards and it has pet cemetery, painted on it but cemetery is spelled wrong but as the way we have it spelled throughout the book and in the title of the book and they look over they just kind of i think the the first grave that they see is a cat i think they, they reference that that particular marker a couple mm-hmm. times when they pass through um and then that that's when judd says that his dog's buried up there and that uh Everybody in his gang of, of friends growing up, they all had pets and they all took turns, you know, bringing their their pets up here when it was time to bury them. Yeah. Judd says that uh, his dog was buried in 1914 and uh, died of old age. Yeah. And they buried it and he points out a marker that is uh, worn away with age. It's so old that the, the markers don't even have the names and the way the graves are arranged they're arranged in concentric circles, eerily planned concentric circles. You would think if this is something that children, this is a children's place. Super creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you were to imagine a, a place where kids went to bury their pets, I would think that it would just be haphazard. <laughs> yeah, it'd yeah, be disorganized. No, but the way I picture this is it's so orderly. And uh, the closer to the center of the circle it gets, the older they are to the where the point in the middle, you can't tell. They're, they're just worn off. And uh, Judd says uh, his dog was buried like three, four rings from the center. So this was old yeah, in the mm-hmm. early 1900s. And it's crazy because it, I get the impression that there's something about this land that is very ritualistic and I don't think the kids knew that they were even making that pattern. It just sort of happened to them. I I would agree. Um, The, the ritual uh, seems to have something to do with um, what lies on the far end of the pet cemetery. There's a deadfall, uh, a bunch of trees that have fallen over blocking uh, further entrance into the woods and Judd says you know you don't want to climb over that he's telling Ellie don't try to climb over that because you could fall you could break your leg um, it's not safe and he mentions uh, Lewis 
uh, thinks the way the trees have fallen, blocking the way into the Indian woods, it, it feels too convenient that it yeah. it didn't happen happen like by happenstance. Yeah, it's a perfect barrier along that edge of the woods. But they they visit and then they head home. But the whole time they're there, Rachel seems uncomfortable, which we find out once they got home uh, is for a pretty good reason. Okay, this next spot kind of bothered me a little yes. bit, if if I may. We we have uh, Ellie is pretty messed up about this mortality of pets. Like she she beats around the bush kind of like, why do pets die in faster than us? And that's a hard question for a child going into kindergarten to have to ask. And she's obviously upset because Lewis doesn't lie to her. He's he's not trying to he he talks about he never forgave his mom for lying about where babies come from. <laughs> so he's not going to lie to his his child. Mm-hmm. And she she breaks down as any child would. Oh, absolutely. Rachel freaks the fuck out. Yes. Her uh, reaction is so much more dramatic than the kindergartner's reaction to death. I wanted to ask you guys what your uh, views on Rachel's reaction were. I thought that Ellie's questions and her response was very normal and very healthy. Absolutely. And how Lewis re- like handled that was exactly how he should have. And it was great. And so Rachel's response to it did not make sense. And I only am not as frustrated about it because I've seen the movie and know that she has good reason to be fucked up. Well, they they mention it, actually. They, uh, they mention it, but it does not do justice. The, oh. It's, she has some issues. Yes. Interesting. Uh, what we know so far is that on the hike, uh, Lewis um, thinks th- about uh, that Rachel, as a child, had a sister named Zelda who died um, of, what was it? I don't oh. think they say rather. She just said that she we, had a sister that died very young. Yes. I don't think they said how she died. Yeah, we might not know yet. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I don't have it in my notes. Um, but she had a sister that passed away. So when they come home and Ellie, extremely naturally, she's a young child. It's only natural for kids to have questions about death. And she acts, she's upset by it. And her beautiful, (laughs) she's screaming, God can have his own damn cat. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that was adorable. That was interesting because my my copy of the book came with an introduction from King. And that happened with his daughter. Oh. Yeah, so he's, this book kind of starts with uh, a real life kind of King experience. Interesting. So I, I guess when we were talking about the introduction of the family, in a way, I was sort of picturing Stephen and Tabitha King and <laughs> some of their kids, but yeah. It's very she... strange for a book where the main character isn't a writer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that's kind of what inspired this, interest. this that is whole very story. Interesting. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Rachel ha- or Ellie has this very natural response about the death. And when he goes downstairs to talk to Rachel about it, she's seething seething angry how dare you talk to my daughter about death she does not want to acknowledge death she thinks this pet cemetery is obscene and terrible 
And she she does not have a healthy relationship with death. I, I have a quote written down. Quote, there's nothing natural about death. End quote. Attributed to Rachel being wrong. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I wrote the same quote down, but mine says, Rachel is an idiot. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> and, I, and he even responds. He's like, he's a doctor. He knows, obviously, that's a ridiculous thing yes. to think. And I can't believe with him being a doctor that this argument or this problem is not something that's more prevalent in their marriage and lives. Yeah. T- to be fair, he handles it pretty well. Yeah. I think. Well, I think he understands her trauma. We don't yet, but mm. I think he does. He he understands. I, I think as much shit as I give him, I even <laughs> have another note saying Lewis, uh, while Rachel is having this this fit, uh, screaming, I hate you at him, he sees her as Ellie which is super condescending and shitty. Uh, but like, even as much shit as I've given the guy, like I, he, he's, he handles it yeah, well. He handles his view business. on marriage is very interesting. He says uh, that you can never re- like the key to having a lasting marriage is understanding that you can never truly 100% understand the other person. Yeah. You have to be like, sometimes <laughs> you'll find out your wife doesn't think death exists <laughs> and you just got to roll with well, it. And that that's kind of a good way to look at it because then you can be prepared for these moments knowing that throughout your marriage, those are going to pop up and you got to deal with them. Right. Yeah. Well, the good thing that comes out of this fight is that he decides the, the Judd warned him with cats that they will wander but if you don't want them to wander, you should get them neutered. And, <laughs> and Lewis has a them. weird association with his cat's balls. He's got a weird <laughs> obsession. With, There's with a lot of cat's weird stuff gender. about church's <laughs> balls. Uh, when, <laughs> when Lewis and Judd are talking at first, uh, Judd asks him, do they climb when he walks? <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? I don't That's know. how he asks: Is he is he neutered? That's oh, I, none of my cats have balls. <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, uh, the, yeah, the good thing that comes out of this is he goes over to Judd's, and he talks to Norma and and Judd. He decides, despite his weird hangups, <laughs> that he should get church uh, church neutered, even yeah. though he, it's going to make him less of a man cat. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess. Time passes the next day. Starts out fine. Sure. Starts out great. Lewis wakes up and they make up. Uh, Rachel sees that he had left a note saying that we're getting uh, we're getting church neutered, and she takes that as a as uh, a win. I, a guess. Win. I get yeah, like yeah. like she was right. <laughs> and um, I, honestly, I wrote they're both kind of annoying, but I'm glad. Because the, the little bits of just, like, family life were really heartwarming. Yeah. He compromised something that was important to him, and she knew how important that was, so. For some reason. For <laughs> yeah, un- that that some I don't reason. get, but yeah. Uh, so they have a great day, and he goes to leave for his first day at his new job. And as he's leaving, he uh, represses the urge to ask if she was so upset because her sister died. 
good fucking like <laughs> good that, instinct. And then walk out the door. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's like literally goes. He wants to go. Is it because of Zelda? Is it? Yes, <laughs> but it he's is. Like, I had the restraint to not sure. do it. Good Wait, instinct. He, he's a medical shit? doctor and not a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Uh, so he drives to work thinking, quote, there was no need to be thinking about death on a beautiful September morning like this one. <gasps> and we never quote, will. Big uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> the next chapter begins with another quote. The nightmare really began when they brought the dying boy, Victor Pascal, into the infirmary around 10 that morning. That accident freaked me out. So there's they bring in this kid, this college student, and he is mangled. Like his head, I think you can see parts of his brain. Yep. He's bleeding out under the carpet. His neck or his collarbone is broken and Sticking jutting. Out. Yeah, jutting out through his skin. And he had been jogging with his fiance, I think, and another friend. Yep. And got hit by a car and crashed into a tree. And he was basically like on impact there was nothing that was going to be done for him so they his friends put him in a blanket and they take him into the medical center where he proceeds to just bleed all over the place i love the way like when it came down to it and we get to kind of see lewis in action where he like pulls it together and he's like barking orders like you do this you do this he's got two candy stripers that are college students that are first day and like just making it all happen Mm -hmm. and i i loved that it shows how good he is at what he does uh but he has that moment of uh nothing ever could have been done for for this kid and i'm just gonna be here until he dies and like they close the shutters so that other people aren't you know aren't gawking and as people start to move to uh to do what he is uh, instructing them to do Victor opens his eyes and he <laughs> says in the pet cemetery, it's not the real cemetery. The soil of a man's heart is stonier. Lewis calls him by his first name. A man grows what he can and tends it. I didn't expect what that. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. This was the point. Um, I, uh, like I said, this is my first time reading the book. I tried to read this book about a year ago. It was a little after we started this podcast. I picked it up at a used book sale, and I was like, no, I'll, I'll give this a shot. And I got like 10 pages in and then gave up. Uh, I I did not care for Lewis in the, in the first <laughs> part, and I, I just gave up. This is the part in the book where from here to the end of this section, I did not put it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love how this section is described um, because as this seemingly unreal thing is happening, Lewis describes it as like being in a play. The the room clears uh, for the dying man's prophecy and then fills again and time starts to move. It felt so unreal. Yeah. And supernatural. It was very engrossing. And I'm wondering... Did he actually say those words? What was that? I mean, was something using his dying body to send Lewis a message Ooh. or was, did it happen another way? I mean, I, I believe that it actually happened, but I'm, I'm so curious about sort of the mechanics of that. Like how, 
is Lewis perceiving this message coming through in this moment that would allow him to be in that frame of mind or someone using Victor? That is really interesting. And uh, we'll, we'll have more reason to question that and uh, what is real and um, what is and isn't actually happening um, pretty soon. Yeah, that same <laughs> night, as a matter of fact. But uh, first, Victor passes away obviously there's nothing that he could do uh the the ambulance comes to take him off and lewis is left with the rest of his day my favorite part is in the afternoon he says the the lowest point of his whole day was his uh one of his assistants in the the medical building comes in and uh tells him that tomorrow they'll have to get the carpet replaced. Yeah. It's such a moment of making death so mundane. It was something irreparable happened. Like that, that mark, there's no getting that mark off of you. And I think he feels that. And I feel like maybe knowing that the only way to go forward is to tear that out and move on is just a lot for him to handle on his first day. And so after staying late, Rachel finally calls and says, I I saw it on the news. You should come home. Thank God she didn't yell at him. She takes it it just about as well as she can because when he gets home, she's, uh, Dressed all sexy. Dressed all sexy. Runs him a bath. Starts giving him a bath. They recess in the bath. <laughs> Barf. <laughs> I literally wrote. Listen to the long walk <laughs> for that joke. Uh, I wrote, they recess in the bath. Dot, dot, dot. Ben will hate this. <laughs> I really did. I wrote, quote, you look delicious. Barf. Like, <laughs> Hold on, though. I, I thought it was touching. Because hey. Hey. Yeah, it was. yeah, Rachel no, did some touching. It... <laughs> hey She has such this trauma and hang up with death, but she has that understanding and she knows that it's part of his job and she can kind of move past herself enough to realize how horrible that must have been for yeah. him on his yeah. first day that she goes out of her way to just do everything she can to make him comfortable and make sure that he ends his day. Nothing like he started it. Yeah. All jokes aside, it, it really is. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is nice. Um, for other once, than the... she's not like underage and he's not this older man. And it's not <laughs> gross. And nothing bad will ever happen to them. No, it's going to be and, perfect. Until the middle of that night. Uh, yes. Uh, that chapter ends with uh, Creed going, uh, going to sleep and sleeping deeply and without dreams. Until a ghost shows up. Yeah. He he wakes up. He hears a sound in the hallway. And it gets closer. And all of a sudden, Victor Pascal throws open the room, uh, the door to his room and walks in. Lewis gets out of bed and he feels he describes that he just feels everything. And it's so real. Like he feels the rug under his feet and that like, wow, this is incredibly real for a dream uh and pascal leads him out down the stairs uh go walks through a door lewis tries to follow him through a door walks into a door <laughs> which i part. love that 
So he's like, ah, oh, this is a weird <laughs> dream. Opens the door and walks out. And he takes him all the way up the path towards the pet cemetery. And he I, he, he says something to the effect that he is becoming so terrified that he knows he has to scream himself awake, but he cannot make a sound as he's standing in the pet cemetery. And, and Pascal is, is standing by the deadfall. And he says, he basically tells him you, no matter how much you think you should, or how much it wants you to do not cross this threshold. The, there, there is a door that must not be opened. Which was another instance that made this like ring true of revival, revival yeah. to me. And he warns him that beyond that tree, that there that barrier exists because no one should go there. And he wakes up and he's so happy it was all a dream. And he hears sounds of of Rachel downstairs making breakfast. And he's just relieved still kind of panicked still coming down from that the intensity of that dream and he steps out of bed and his feet are dirty and covered in pine needles and the sheets are all muddy and he has to take the sheets off and throw them in the laundry chute and wash his feet and Rachel Rachel's calling up to him how many eggs do you want and he is trying not to lose his shit he's you you can feel he's on the border of madness yeah he's like giggling like he's doing this and he's like giggling to himself and he cannot get himself under control he he thinks uh quote he wondered if he had always been within touching distance of such mad irrationalities if everyone is i love that i feel like that line is almost a thesis statement for all horror especially king yeah is that the scariest things are things that happen just in the middle of day-to-day life. And then this inexplicable terror just comes out of nowhere. It reminds me kind of of the Dark Tower series too, that sort of that other world, you know, our veil is lifted and here's what's really behind it. And it it feels like in that moment, he's close. Like Mm. that veil is very thin. One quick thing there there's a few things uh the scene the quote unquote dream in the pet cemetery that i really want to point out is first of all when he sees the deadfall it's not the dead oh yeah it is a giant pile of bones i just had to point that out because it is dark souls as fuck (laughs) and uh, i love it (laughs) And also that um, Pascal uh, tells him in this dream, one of the last things he says to him is, your destruction and the destruction of all you love is very near, Doctor. Pass. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing bad is going to happen in this family. (laughs) It's just... And the fact that this is happening quickly like Mm -hmm. the book doesn't really take long to get to something this i think you guys would agree with me like objectively terrifying Mm -hmm. like this part yes creeped me the fuck very creepy it's inserted in this otherwise very mundane normal kind of everyday stuff you don't it takes long enough to get to it and everything else is so normal that when it 
gets to it, it hits you. It gives you that, like, okay, we need to strap in because things are going to get crazy way faster than I think they are. But <laughs> things go back to normal. Life yeah. goes on. Other than a quick bout of um, shaking and screaming on the drive to work, he essentially puts it out of his mind. The next day he goes back to work. He does some, like, preliminary looking into what had happened. Well, he wants to see if there's a connection. Because Pascal called him by name and then had he had this dream and he knows that, you know, he went through this trauma. It must have been sleepwalking. And there's a rational explanation behind all of this. And he can't find there's no connection between Pascal and himself. He even calls and he calls to see if like the body is still even in town and the body has been sent to his family. So he, it's even more proof. Oh, I, this definitely has to have been a hallucination. Did you guys think a Salem's Lot happened? Because I thought a Salem's Lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did think of that. Yeah, he calls the coroner and the coroner's like, oh, yeah, the, pa- the Pasco, his, he's not here anymore. Oh, yeah, and he's like, what? <laughs> I started to write down, oh, no, a Salem's Lot. It's a vampire. Uh, and then he's like, no, we just flew it flew it home to but New he's, Jersey. He's trying to rationalize it as much as he can. And he's not good at it. <laughs> because it takes him a full day to be like, sleepwalking. <laughs> <laughs> I was sleepwalking. Oh, of course. The next thing, though, is my favorite instance of things that lewis does and that's when he in the daytime goes back to the pet cemetery and he he walks back up and he he sees he's like checking out the deadfall and that you know it's basically there's brush on either side there's no way there's no good way around you would have to go over and he has that conversation with himself he's looking at like uh yeah yeah you don't want to climb over that no i don't want to climb over that I bet that's pretty impassable. Yep, you're damn right. That's impassable. As then he's and then he starts climbing. I, I love that. <laughs> just like, nope, this is a bad idea, and then just does it. I've never related stronger to this character than that moment. Yeah, uh, and he he gets just high enough to know that there's a path on the other side. Yep. But from then on, he kind of lets it out of his mind. Uh, time passes, and, and he says, "A victor in the dream, he remembered them." but it faded and became unimportant. Uh, kind of like the time he visited a prostitute six yeah! years ago. What? How old is Ellie? Uh, that, that is <laughs> Wait, a she's very no, that's important question. She's... Sam, that's not how that works. The prostitute didn't no, get him pregnant. No, did he cheat on Sam, let's she back up. When two, Who's when two the people baby's love each... mama? <laughs> No, he might have slept with two women. Who's the baby's mama? No, I agree. How long? How old is Ellie? Okay, she's going to kindergarten. Five or six. Meaning, how long have him and Rachel been together? Way longer than six years, right? Wait. Okay, so a little bit later in the book, he's talking about when he and Rachel were dating, Mm -hmm. and he's he was in med school, Mm. and her dad tried to pay him off to break off their engagement. So they have been to. He cheated on her. Oh, 100%. And yep. this is literally, it is one line and never mentioned again. Okay, maybe he is an asshole. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I'm on your guys' side. What now. the hell is all I'm saying? <laughs> anyway, it, it fades from his mind as it should from us because, man, that, <laughs> that Lewis Creed, he's a great guy. Uh, Halloween comes. Uh, and it's very sad. Um, Halloween comes. Uh, by sad, you mean awesome? 
what? What? Huh? I thought this was great. G- hit us. O- okay. Go for it, it Josh. It's Halloween. They're hanging out at the, the Crandall's because uh, Ellie's super excited about her witch costume. And they're hanging out. And um, okay. The sad part is that Norma looks like she's getting worse. Like her arthritis is is, is bad. Um, but Lewis has checked her out and is like, well, your doctor's doing everything, everything he can. Um and they're outside talking and then they hear Ellie and there's two other kids that are there shout and they run in and uh, Norma has fallen down. Like, it looks bad. She, He's like, oh, she's dying right now. And then once again, he leaps into action and he, he starts CPR. He starts barking orders, telling, you know, Judd, like, I thought the very smart thing was getting Judd out of the house immediately. Mm-hmm. You go to my house and call an ambulance. Get out of here. Tell Rachel to bring me my bag. Uh, the mom of those two twins comes in and like is trying to help. And he's you know just barking orders like a champ. And uh, it it nor looks like he he assesses the situation and he determines like she's breathing. She's she's gonna be fine as long as the ambulance gets here. She's gonna be completely fine. She had a small heart attack. And, you know, thank God we were here when this happened, because obviously this could have been so much worse. And I thought that was awesome. That part is awesome. But what freaks me out is that I have a horrible feeling that this is the first of many and she's going to die in this book. I want her to die after the book, so well, I don't have to read I mean, about it. <laughs> I, I, what? Sure. I, it, it was so sad for me because of Judd. Norma is in the kitchen with the kids. Yeah. And Lewis and Judd are out on the porch talking when something happens and they hear the kids yelling, Dad, Dad. Oh, but Norma before, fell. Before they hear them yelling, Norma fell, Lewis is looking at Judd and Judd stops and he kind of, he like, this look passes over his face and Lewis can tell that something's wrong, but he doesn't mm-hmm. know what. And then we hear the girls screaming. Yeah. So Judd senses this and they run in and just the, the moment of finding her on the ground, Judd goes to her and Lewis, when he gets in, Judd is at her side, stroking her wrist. And he says, she's dying, I think. And honest to God, I almost started crying. I, I, love the Crandalls so much. <laughs> they are so adorable throughout the book. They're, they banter with each other. They've been married forever. It's just, I'm a softy and that's a weak spot for me. And just the thought of like this adorable, sweet old couple and one of them losing the, I'm, I can't, and, I'm going to start crying. Oh, right and now. Lewis stops to think about her 17 year old breasts. yes that also happens it's so weird it does also happen (laughs) but anyway no you're but you're right that was i that entire time i had no idea whether she was gonna live or die like it could have gone so much either way but i just i love these medical action scenes Mm -hmm. Uh, it is they're so cool uh seeing lewis that he is really good at his job was was pretty cool and thank goodness that ellie was trick-or-treating at their house yeah at that moment that she was in there and it's interesting too because after on their way home 
or later when they're in the car trick-or-treating and she asks him, you know, Daddy, did I make Norma have a heart attack? Miss Crandall have a heart attack? And he's like, no, you saved her life, actually. But then she follows that with being like, yeah, but she'll be dead soon. She has like, a way wait, like less sad reaction <laughs> to well, Mrs. Think... Crandall dying than the thought of her cat dying. Well, that's well because such... old people just die, right? Like that's her but thing. Cats are immortal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought that was a great, um, a, a great actually bit of writing. Is that seems so natural? Like a, a little kid would be beside themselves when the, their first thought of mortality is their pet cat who they love more than anything dying and then coming to terms with this. And this is months later and then coming to face to face with mortality again and just, she's okay with it. Yeah. And I think that shows how right Lewis was in telling the truth about, about death. Yeah. I I, I 100% agree with that. Um, so they finish trick or treating and go home and that night uh lewis as lewis is in bed he thinks he hear, hears steps on the stairs <laughs> and he goes to look at it certain that he'll see victor pascal putrefied uh his brain melted to paste and uh it's so disgusting i yeah. just wanted to uh, see if you guys thought the idea of a ghost rotting is as upsetting to you guys as it is to me. Yeah. It's horrible. Because I've <laughs> never thought, you know, you think of ghosts and you it think likes, just like yeah, how they die. Yeah. But the idea of a ghost that rots at the same rate as their bot. That's horrible. Ugh, Do God, not like. So disgusting. Ooh, man. There's some I real was, horror in this book. This book I was is, not prepared for him to see what he thought he was going to see, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, I... He had those theories, but I was, I knew that if this is a King book, so I know if he did see him, we were going to get the full detailed description of his proud flesh. (laughs) (laughs) But when he throws the door open, there is nothing there. Thankfully. Although we still basically got it. Yeah. Because he thought about it. That's true. (laughs) uh, More time passes. Norma is recovering, feeling fine. Rachel and the kids go to Chicago for Thanksgiving, and we get... Uh, brief history of Lewis, uh, Lewis and her father. Yeah, so he's be, and I kind of mentioned earlier he tried to pay him off to break off their engagement, and for that reason, their relationship is damaged, and Lewis is not going with the family. So he's staying behind while Ellie and Rachel and Gage are going away for Thanksgiving. I also like that he makes a point to say Rachel doesn't know. Like mm-hmm. I, he never has plans to tell her because she would hate her father mm-hmm. for it. And that's, I think that's another moment of showing what, um, what a compassionate person Lewis is because he could be way more vindictive. Yeah. That's she just knows something happened. Yeah. She knows yeah. they don't get along. He, he doesn't need to tell her to feel better when it will damage their relationship. Right. And he, he she even like, kind of makes a joke about at the airport about like, you'll be, you're, you're going to be so sad you missed it. And he's like, yep. <laughs> and they kind of laugh. So it's, yeah, it's not terrible. Yeah. Lewis is, he's prideful. He, he keeps this vindiction against her father where he says that like, if he just ignored it and pretended it never happened, it would all be 
mended, but he still holds on to it. But he really does love his family yeah. more than anything. And uh, and one prostitute. And, and he <laughs> loves his fi- family. Who knows if that, who, is that Ellie's mom? Is that Gage's mom? I don't even know. That's, once again, not how prostitutes work. <laughs> I, have you guys uh, been with a prostitute? <laughs> I've been to Vegas. <laughs> oh, God. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> so Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Thanksgiving and Lewis is home alone. And he's feeling very lonely and missing his family. On one night, he gets a call from Judd. He's he took a nap. I think it wasn't it after Thanksgiving dinner. It was after dinner, yeah. Yeah. So he goes back to his house and it's like I want to say early evening. He takes a nap and he wakes up sometime later. Um still in the evening, not quite night yet. And he's got a call. It's from Judd. And he says, There's a cat dead in my yard. I think it might be church. And so he gets up, he grabs a a bag to put him in, puts on his coat when he goes out there, and it is church. Yep. Uh, He he kind of examines, because it's it's November, so there's like, it's night and there's frost in it, so it's cold, like the ground is super hard, and he goes over and he checks, and, and church is completely stiff, and he can see that church wasn't run over, but the his, his neck's broken so he kind of presumes that he was like maybe crossing the street and got like hit with like the bumper of of a car and that impact tossed him into judd's yard and he he grabs church and judd is there this whole time like judd is like standing there like with him and he lifts church into the bag and Judd just says, hold on, and walks away. Yeah, he he's acting weirdly distance. Yeah. D- distant. He's like staring into the middle distance and and just seems odd. And when he comes back, he's holding a shovel and a pickaxe. And he says, you, your daughter loved that cat, right? Well, let's go. We're burying it. And so they head to the cemetery. And it's not just that. It's also that like he because he says something about like, oh, we can do it tomorrow. And he but he specifically says it can't wait if you love your daughter. And I was like, oh, that how do I mean, how do you not go with that, I guess? (laughs) And they've built this relationship and they're so close. I think that's why he Lewis is he does not question it. He's Mm. in fact, he's content for for as sad as everything is, he feels, you know, good, and he follows him not to, not to bury Church in the pet cemetery, but they are heading toward that downfall. Throughout this entire sequence, as dreamlike and surreal as this sequence gets, throughout the whole thing, he he describes himself as feeling like almost like a little kid on an adventure. Like, I got that feeling. Yeah. Right? Well, because he, he has Judd as as this this guide who just every step of the way is just saying, follow me, uh, don't, don't hesitate. You have to be sure uh, and you have to be quick with every yeah. step. Just don't look down. Just follow me and yep. trust me. They they platform nine and three quarters their way <laughs> uh, through uh, over the over the deadfall, 
And they climb over and it's ominous and like something is happening, but they keep walking. And they eventually reach uh, what the Micmac Indians called Little God Swamp. And Judd says, don't look down, just walk. And they're walking for what seems like a long time. And Judd tells him, listen, there's going to be, there's St. Elmo's fire. If you see their green lights in the distance, ignore it. Just keep walking. And there are loons. So if you hear voices. Did you guys think of Stand By Me? Oh, no. Oh, because (laughs) so they're. They're walking and they come to a stop because they hear something. And Lewis is going to ask Judd, is that, you know, is it a moose? And he's thinking bear, but there are no bears there. And so they're stopped and they're listening. And all of a sudden they hear a shrill, maniacal laugh coming out of the darkness. And it's rising and falling in hysterical cycles, loud, piercing, chilling. And it reminded me of the night the boys spent in the forest and stand in the body mm. actually is the name of the book. The movie is stand by me when they hear that screaming yeah. in the middle of the night and it wakes them all up and they're terrified. I did it, not think it that, didn't, but, but now it does. No, the connection that I, it, it's a stretch, but the connection that I made as that as they're walking through the swamp, there is uh Lewis says there's something big nearby. And they hear this noise that sometimes it's moving away from them and sometimes it's coming toward them. Yeah. And he keeps expecting this shape, this giant shape to just loom out of the mist. And there's a ground fog covering their the, up to their waist as they're walking. I thought it was possibly uh, walking through a thinny of some sort. Oh. Uh Listeners, thinnies are much cooler than their name would say. (laughs) Uh, Look it up. Anyway. I feel uh, that way about me too. (laughs) (laughs) So they they walk through the, the swamp and eventually they reach these stairs carved into stone. And they climb up and they find a cemetery on a, a ground downhill. It's like the adult version of the pet cemetery. It's it has it's arranged in those circles. And Judd tells Lewis that he can't help him. He has to be the one to bury church, but the stone the ground is very stony. So he spends what I thought was hours in the book just digging at this yeah. stony earth and he's got a he has a pickaxe and He's hitting the stone so hard that sparks are flying. And as he's digging this grave, Judd is carefully taking away the rocks that he's pulled out of that part of the earth that he's digging. And he even asks, like, as he's digging, he asks Judd, like, is this good? And Judd just like, is it good enough for you? Because that's what's important. That's what's important. You, it, it has, if as long as it's good enough for you, then it's good enough. And he describes it as the Cadillac of cat graves, <laughs> which I was like, all right, be a little more humble, but I mean, all right, I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah. So uh, they, they dig this and he buries church and they lay a cairn and they head home. And when they get to the house, Lewis stops Judd and he says, 
what the fuck? What like <laughs> what are we doing here? And Judd's reaction was so so unsettling to me because Judd looks him in the eyes and he just says, "Stop asking questions." Mm-hmm. You're asking questions is not going to solve anything. The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. A man grows what he can and tends it. Those were Victor Pascal's dying words. I did not make that connection <laughs> until hearing them, hearing it in, in the episode like this, like where we're talking about it all together. Mm-hmm. As soon as you started saying it, I was like, wait, Ben, you said that? <gasps> yep. <laughs> he also... Uh, the book also got me in that he talks about Spot again, and he says that his dog died when he was 10 years old. And Lewis is like, that doesn't seem right. As I was thinking, that doesn't seem right. And it took me a while mm-hmm. to come around. And he also says something interesting about Lewis questions. Because he says, basically, he's like, if you'll go with your gut. If you're questioning it, if there's doubt, then that's going to mean it was wrong. And if it was wrong then we didn't do something good. We did something terrible. It's very ominous. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and ominous in a way that Lewis has no control over. He he did it. He He's done it. And how he like he's getting confused because he has questions. And the more he's not getting answers, he's getting more and more questions. Well, it's like he's and he's getting it's like he's coming too. he's coming out of a sleepwalk mm-hmm. almost because as he's getting distance from that burial ground and he's back at his own home, he's like, why did we do that? Yeah. The, all I know is Judd, Judd knows more than he's letting on. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait to find ah, out. I know. Unfortunately, it, it ends there. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. Join us for our next episode, which is part two of Pet Cemetery, covering chapters 23 through 40. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, that cats were the gangsters of the animal world, living outside the law and often dying there. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pet Cemetery. We have some amazing news to share with you, so this outro is going to be a little longer than usual. Please stick with me. Before we get to our news, I want to plug our awesome new sponsor, The $1 Producer Project. This is an artist fund whose purpose is to give creators more opportunities without shouldering the financial burden alone. For only $1 a month, you can help produce up-and-coming artists' live shows, art shows, films, and so much more. Find the $1 Producer Project on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, you can now find Dairy Public Radio there. And listeners, I'm not joking when I tell you Josh, Ben, and I came up with some seriously cool perks for you. You guys mean so much to us that it wasn't enough to simply give you our bi-weekly podcast. We wanted to do more and hopefully pay our bills. Visit Dairy Public Radio on Patreon.com, find a tier you dig, and go crazy. If you don't want to pay to support us, that's fine too. Head over to iTunes and rate and review us. We've been blown away by your support these last few weeks. iTunes reviews are pretty much the only way people find us right now. We're not connected to any network. We do this all on our own. And if you could help us spread the word, we would love you forever. As always, find us on Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. And send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com because we love to hear from you. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.